You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westbca.com. Open your Bible, please, to a new place. The New Testament letter of Paul to the Colossian church. A small letter, it's only a few pages, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians you'll find in the middle of the New Testament. Let me just reflect for you for a minute of why we're turning here. I hope we've had a good time for about six months looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which are the foundational chapters, bringing us up to the experience of Abraham. Some of you were... uh, saying, go on, go on, stay in Genesis. You know, in the African-American churches, they, they have a way of responding to the preacher, which is just a hand sign. It's like this. And when I first saw this in a black church, I didn't know what it was, and I found out it means, go on, preacher, go on. And some people were saying, go on in Genesis. Well, I have a concern to balance the word as I bring it to you, and, and we need to be in New Testament as well as Old, in Gospel as well as Epistle, and uh, that's, that's a balancing act. And as I prayed about where we were going next, I felt strongly that this letter of Colossians would lead us to some things, particularly things we're going to find in chapter 1 just before Easter, that glorify Christ in a wonderful way and have the loving heart of Paul the Apostle upon a church that would speak to us as well. So I encourage you, if you want to read this letter on your own or read it in other translations and so on, to put your hearts towards this and and listen to God's Word. I'm going to read the first eight verses as we introduce this letter today. Colossians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that sprang from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Father, as we undertake to know more and go deeper into what you say in your Word, help us to grasp what your inspired apostle was writing and how it applies, how it may be alive for us in our situation today. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
I tell you no surprise when I say that during America's great 21st century economic recession, plenty of bad news has bombarding, been bombarding us every single day. TV and newspapers seem to spew forth a steady stream of job losses, company closings, downturns in the stock market, and many other depressing issues. And much of the news isn't as though it's just out there happening to somebody somewhere. It's happening to us. It's very personal. It affects our security and our money and our friends and our family members, maybe yourself losing jobs and seeing these things take place. I was interested this past week in noting, as I watched NBC Nightly News early in the week, that they were adding a new daily feature at the conclusion of their broadcast, which they've done each day, I believe, this week and intend to continue. A a very short clip of an intentional good news story. They said, now we're going to let you viewers tell us what these need to be. Write in and and tell us of some good news, something inspirational, something unusual that's in your community or in your view. And they said they've been inundated by people giving them suggestions. One of the nights this week they told about a 75-year-old retiree, a man who sadly had lost his wife a year or so ago to a serious cancer. Instead of pulling into himself and simply saying, well, I'm 75, my companion is gone now, I, I don't see what I can contribute to the world, this man has done something remarkable. He decided that he would personally volunteer as many hours as it took to provide a free taxi service to underprivileged people in a poor section of his city in the south who would have difficulty getting rides to medical appointments and especially cancer patients who need to get to chemotherapy or radiation treatments or these kinds of things. So he's made it known that he has a free taxi and he will take people to their medical appointments. And by the way, it mentioned that it has cost him up to $800 a month of his own money to keep his vehicle running to do this. Needless to say, here's a good news story. A man who is beloved to many for the service that he's rendering. I wonder if some people would say, well, our longing to hear good news is just an escape mechanism. We hear so much bad that we just want to get away. We want to to retreat into some fantasy realm where everything's good and nothing's evil, nothing's negative. Well, I can tell you there's nothing escapist And there's nothing of fantasy in the true good news of God's great love for for all who believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on their behalf. You know, I think, that the gospel, the word gospel, means good news, wonderful news. News that counteracts the tide of this world to be swept away by evil and darkness. And because of that word, good news, I want to emphasize it as the core of an introduction I would give you today to this 
wonderful letter of the Apostle Paul that we call the book of Colossians. Now, I choose to preach from this letter mainly because its theme stresses so greatly the supremacy of Christ. Some of the most mature Christology, we call it, doctrines about Christ in the whole New Testament are found in Colossians. Paul will be telling us that Christ is God's appointed head over creation itself and over his church, and that he becomes the fullness of God communicated to and experienced by believers in his name. There are other books that maybe you associate with a very, we would say, high view of Christ. The Gospel of John, many think of as having the most emphasis on the divinity of Christ of all the four Gospels. Well, I would say to you that even John does not exceed Colossians in the supremacy, the place of honor and unlimited glory that it sees for Christ. As I began looking at this letter, and by the way, just a little oddity. This is, this is nothing to note but the fact that the verse divisions in our Bible are not inspired. They were done by men many years after the Scripture came to us and, and even was in uh, translations out of the Greek and Hebrew. I find one of the oddest verse divisions I've ever seen in the Bible in, between Colossians 1, 5, and 6. Verse 6 begins in the middle of a sentence not even at a place of necessary punctuation. I find that very strange, and it just reminds us that this isn't part of the inspired nature of Scripture. But right at that place, verses 5 and 6, I see the emphasis on the fact that the, about the gospel that came to the Colossian believers. That seems to be Paul's central emphasis here, the gospel that came to you. Now, Paul didn't plant this church. In fact, we're not sure that he ever even visited Colossae for sure. It was, you might say, his spiritual grandchild because it resulted from the ministry of another man who was influenced first by Paul. And yet the apostle knew about the good news, the gospel, that these people had embraced. He knew what they'd embraced, and he knew how it had revolutionized their lives as they believed it. And you see, the Christian faith always begins in the announcement of wonderful good news, historic good news, good news that is utterly true, demonstrated in time and space in the person of Jesus Christ. You remember when Jesus was born at Bethlehem, every Christmas we look to the text that tells how angels announced him to shepherds, literally you might say, blowing their trumpets, heralding the great fact, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom God is pleased. God's Messiah is born. And archangels themselves were thrilled to be heralds of what was really the best news the earth had ever heard or could hear. You see, good news about Christ is more than just a brief inspirational word to cheer you up or, or lift you, sort of a, uh, like a, we have these devotional booklets, and they're fine. I'm not putting them down. The Daily Bread or the Upper Room where we just have a little tiny page. and Well, here's a little bite of inspiration for today. It's not much. It's not going to take me long to read it, but it might lift me. It might point me to a verse of Scripture. 
the good news about Christ is not just a little uplift. It's not just something to cheer you for a few moments and then you forget and, and get overwhelmed again by the bad news. The biblical gospel of Christ crucified and risen is good news of such a nature that it has transformational power to remake your life. It leaves people entirely different in its wake once they have heard it with eyes and ears and hearts of faith. So it would really be a tragedy if Christians ever became jaded about the glories of gospel good news. Now, in the first place today, I begin our look at Colossians 1 through 8. I'm going to begin kind of at the end of this passage, and there's a method to my madness. Verse 7 actually raises an introductory issue that makes it a good place to start. Paul writes in verse 7, You learned the gospel, that is, from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. This first point I'm stressing is that the gospel comes to you by God's appointed messenger. Now, we don't know much of anything about Epaphras. We think he's the same person who may also be called Epaphroditus in other places. Can't tell you a thing about him except that he came from Colossae and that apparently he first heard the good news of Christ from Paul. Paul didn't visit this town. You can look at a Bible map if you want to find Colossae, if that helps you. It, you may want to know it's in the land of modern Turkey. It was called Asia Minor in older days. It's about 100 miles inland. Ephesus is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in what is now Turkey. And if you, you go east from Ephesus, about 100 miles inland, you find a much smaller town, Colossae. It's never a big city. It wasn't a prosperous place. And in fact, not too long after the time of this letter, it actually was devastated by an earthquake, and a lot of Colossae was destroyed. But here is Paul writing a letter to a church he's never been to with this background. It appears that Epaphras has journeyed to Rome where Paul is in prison. This is the later stage of his ministry, still a few years before his death. He's there with Timothy. He acknowledges Timothy in the opening verse. And probably Epaphras has come and said, Paul, let me tell you about what's happening in Colossae. And, and he spilled out the story of his planting a congregation there and of the fact that the people were walking in faith and showing the love of Christ and many good things about them. But he also raised some concerns, not as grievous as, as some of the real severe problems that were in the Corinthian church and others, but there were some troublemakers in Colossae. And you're going to find Paul speaking to these people, addressing the errors that they were bringing. We think this letter was written about A.D. 61 or 62, and that makes it relatively late as a letter of Paul. A number of other New Testament letters are before this, and like any person, Paul's mind and understanding under the guidance of God we're growing, and that may be why the, the understanding he, of Christ that he has here is most mature, perhaps, of anything he says about Christ anywhere else. And by the way, he probably wrote this at just about the same time as he wrote the letter of Ephesians. If you laid those two letters side by side, I, in seminary I took a course 
called Ephesians, Colossians. You would say, why do they put those two together? Because of the great similarities between them. If you outline the two, they have an extremely similar outline and even topics and passages that kind of match, clearly from the same person. You know, if I was writing to, to two different people of this congregation from afar somewhere about Christian issues, I might write a very similar letter with some personalization. That's what we have in Ephesians, Colossians. Well, there was false teaching there. It was a hodgepodge of errors and mystical superstitions. People who claimed to be superior in spiritual understanding were coming and saying, let me tell you what Paul didn't tell you. Let me tell you that we need angels as our intermediaries with God. Let me tell you that you need to live a a stricter, more legal life than Paul had implied to you. Let me tell you that Christ was not a part of this physical creation. He only appeared that way. And you'll see Paul's responses to these errors coming along as we go in later into the things, these things in the book. For a moment today, I want you to think about those who might have been your messengers. Not Epaphras, of course. But who were the messengers for you in your life who first made the gospel known to you? That might be a good exercise for all of us to consider. To go back and consider the chain of people through whom the the gospel's been taught to you, parents perhaps, friends, pastors, who knows exactly who it's been in your life. You ought to be able to give thanks to God for these people and even pray for these people if they're still with us in this world. Back in November of 2006, you'll, many of you recall that we had the dedication service almost two and a half years ago now. It hardly seems possible for this sanctuary to be dedicated one night in November to the glory of God. That was an exciting night as more than a thousand people crammed in here and we sang God's praises together. It was exciting for me, but not just from a standpoint of glory to God for this wonderful facility. There was a very personal reason, and and honestly, as I went home that night, I told my wife that if I had to say why I was excited that night, it was just as much for a guest who was there that you didn't know, and you had no idea of why this person would be important to me. My childhood pastor was here that night, Reverend Stanley Lewis from Western New York, a retired man who was the Lord's mouthpiece for myself and my whole family to come to know Jesus Christ and his saving gospel. Pastor Lewis is still living today, age 87. He's a wonderful, wonderful servant of the Lord. You'll never know him on this earth, but I wish somehow you could. In the years since I heard him as a boy and a teenager, I've, I would say I've certainly heard greater preachers from a standpoint of, of oratory or polish or dynamism, you know, national preachers whose tapes and books and so on sell out all over the place could exceed my boyhood pastor. But I honestly don't think I've ever met anyone whose heart of sincerity and passion to communicate Jesus Christ is greater than that of my friend Stanley Lewis. I'm telling you about him because I realized that it was through the work God had done in this man that the gospel sprang from him to me. 
and to my sisters and to my parents. We saw that this man believed the gospel with vibrant passion. And the power of his faith communicating God's words to us was almost like a blood transfusion to a half-dead body. We came alive under it. The Holy Spirit took his words and planted them in us as if we were a plowed field and the seed of God was being spread across that field. I remember a quote many years ago about the fact that Benjamin Franklin, who went to his grave as far as we know being a skeptic about Christianity, was a great friend of George Whitfield, the passionate evangelist. And people said, someone said to Franklin one time, Mr. Franklin, we find it a curious thing that you have this this great friendship and admiration for Mr. Whitfield, and you two like to spend time together when we know you do not follow Whitfield's evangelical faith. How is that? How is it that, that you want to be near to Whitfield when he speaks about God and Christ as he does? You don't believe it. Franklin, in his inimitable way, said, yes, it's right. I don't believe it. But he does. And I joy to be near to someone who believes it in the manner that he does. God does an important work through people like my pastor, and you can put your own name in that blank instead of my pastor. And remember the work he began to do in you as you discovered the gospel of Jesus Christ was of great importance to your life. Now, this gospel is always communicated from life to life. You know, it's not, it's not a static thing that happens. You know, we plan, I've, I've met a few people who, I would say, came to Christ almost entirely without any life contact from a preacher or a family member who witnessed to them. But they are rather rare, people who only had a Bible somewhere or a portion of a gospel, and with almost nothing else written on the slate of their souls, they came to the Lord. That's possible. God can certainly do that. But his normal method is to let the gospel leap from one life to another. Not just through preachers and teachers, but family members and friends who pray for and model and encourage the Christian life with authenticity and sincerity. In Romans 10, Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, then it follows a question with a question or a problem. And Romans 10, 14 says this rhetorical question, how can people call on one they have not believed in? And how will they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches to them? Give thanks to God for those who have formed you in communicating the gospel from their lives to yours. And just as Epaphras was the key messenger to establish this Colossian church, God already has used appointed messengers for you, and I would ask you to believe that he still has people strategically positioned in places of support and influence and teaching in your life. Maybe you don't even know yet who some of them are going to be who will help establish that good news in you. Well, secondly, our text makes an observation 
that I would summarize this way, that the gospel offers future hope in Christ, giving rise to faith and love. You notice three key words that I've, in what I just said, hope, faith, and love. Now, Paul states this <coughs> in verse 5 in a rather unusual way. We read here, the faith and love that sprang up from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven is what he's praising about them. Now, we tend to think that the order of these three things would be this. Number one, I have faith in Christ. Number two, that brings me to love other people. And number three, that leads to the future dimension that I have hope in heaven. But Paul, maybe just to get our attention or teach us or or somehow make a stop over this thing, turns it around. In this place, he puts hope first. He says, you have a hope in Christ, and that hope gives rise to your faith and your love. That's an unusual way, at least, to express it. And we find that hope in Paul's vocabulary is a confident expectation of one day seeing our Savior face to face and being at rest in Him. And it's not You know, we say so many times, people use the word hope all wrong in this word. Oh, I hope the new presidency and his administration will do this. And we have, you know, vague ideas or wishes, and they might happen, and they might very well not happen. But when Paul talks about hope, he's talking about a Christian's firm stake of expectation of being found in Christ in eternity because of the sure things Christ has done in this world, particularly his death and his resurrection. 1 Peter 1.3 would, would be a good uh, corollary verse to put beside this here, where Peter writes that God has given us a new birth into a living hope. When Scott Johnston went to Lidditz and the church had to be named, you know it's called Living Hope Presbyterian Church, named for 1 Peter 1.3. God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade that is kept in heaven for you who now through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation to be revealed in the last day. We have things in this world that that we think have been put aside and kept for us you might be someone who puts money into a 401k pension fund, and, or your employer does, or both of you do, and, and you thought, well, good, they're keeping that money for me. Surprise. It wasn't all kept for you, was it? And some of it just disappeared along with the dropping stock market. Well, a Christian's hope of heaven is more secure than money in your bank or money in your pension fund. Because, you see, the Scripture says it's your inheritance in Christ. God isn't going to rewrite His will. He has said, you are going to be established, and you are going to stand with me and with the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity safe. You will be mine. That's a sure reality. It's a dwelling that awaits us. It's a certain hope. And Paul seems to be saying here, Everything else spins out of that, you see. Christ has been raised. He's gone before us into heaven. And therefore, we we are sure that God will do these things. And then he says, faith 
arises from that. And, of course, faith is not in the biblical definition, just what some people think. I've heard people that come through a hard experience uh, being interviewed on radio or TV or something, and, well, how did you get through it? Well, I had a great faith. Oh, that's tremendous. Faith in what? Faith in faith? Faith that you could endure? That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is faith in a person, a sure, certain person. And Paul says, in effect here, because you have a certain hope in the future, you can walk by faith right now. Sure and trusting in that same person, Jesus Christ, to do all that God promises he will do. Because he has been established before our eyes in historic ways. He walked in this world. People witnessed him. People were amazed at him. And we have their testimony about him. Second Peter 1.16 says, We've not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The Christ of the Bible, Jesus Christ, is someone worthy of our faith and our trust because he is so well attested by the witness of history and even his resurrection. That unbelievable event is well attested by witnesses. Well, then Paul seems to be saying, all right, you have this sure hope, and it gives you faith in Christ now, and it also produces a great love. And he was praising them for their faith and their love. Love not only for God in Christ, but for each other. You see, the radical love of Christ takes hold of disciples and makes them be able to love others and give of themselves and serve and do things beyond reason or calculation of just what's in it for me. This unshakable hope and settled faith results in a radical love, a love that the world doesn't know how to explain especially for Christ's church and for the weak and helpless of this world. These things, this hope, this faith, this love, are the fruits by which we know a Christian. And Paul was praising this church because he could see these things in them. Then thirdly, and finally today in this introduction to Colossians, he makes another observation as verse 6 reports, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. In the third place, then, this same gospel that has come to me and you is a gospel that bears fruit all over the world, and we need to remember that. You see, Paul was writing this just about 30 years exactly after the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's not very long. You know, cast yourself back 30 years, those of you that are at least that old anyway, uh, if you're 40 or more and can remember 30 years back, and you've got 1979. Now, many of you can tell me things you were doing in 1979, where you lived, what work you were doing, what your family looked like, what your life looked like. It wasn't so long ago. Well, that's the period of time between the resurrection of Christ and this letter of Colossians, 30 years. And it is amazing to think how Christianity had already been spreading in just those three decades. Paul was sending letters out to far-flung places where churches had already been established 10 or 20 years. 
There had already been enough time for problems to come in. There had already been time for little churches to start other little churches to start other little churches. And beginning with probably less than 100 people who truly looked to Christ as Savior and Lord at the time of his resurrection or immediate aftermath of his resurrection, we know that by A.D. 100, when the last of the apostles was dead, the estimate at least is that there were at least half a million Christians in the Mediterranean world and and places beyond just in those years of a few decades. It was amazing because here was the Roman Empire, the, the largest, grandest superpower the world had ever seen, and it was beginning to crumble. The power of Rome rotting from within was beginning to erode, and it was slipping all over the place, and they were having to shore up their authority And people watched over the coming decades as this little, seemingly unorganized, very weak movement that sprang up from the teaching of a dead Jewish rabbi, in in the minds of secular people at least, that's what they would have called it, as that movement swelled and rolled and spread and multiplied so that just in a few centuries, when the end of the Roman Empire came when the Visigoths swept in and sacked Rome, Christians numbered in the millions. Today it is reported, I, we can't authoritatively declare these numbers, but the estimates are made at least that in a nominal sense, in the nominal church definition of those who would say something about Jesus being their Lord, nearly two billion people about half of the world's population is at least nominally Christian. Now you say, it doesn't seem to be increasing that much in America, and you're basically right. A denomination or a church that increases 2%, 3% a year feels like it's doing quite well. The Southern Baptist Convention, one of the, lar- the largest Protestant denomination, actually had a net loss of growth in the last year. Are we growing in America? It's certainly slowed down. Are we growing in Europe? You've heard from Steve Beck in the last couple weeks of the deadly bad situation of the gospel in Europe. But ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that we have little idea of what is really going on in Africa, in South America, in many parts of Asia. The gospel is burgeoning and growing People are being converted. Churches are being started. The estimate I read recently, it seems too much to take in, but you listen to this number, two numbers. In every single day, by tomorrow, there will be 50,000 new Christian believers in the world and 300 new churches. The gospel is spreading The gospel is alive in the power that it makes known of the divine truth of Christ crucified and risen. It causes people to have a new birth. It leaves people changed forever because it's the power from God. Isaiah 55 has that reminder from God that my word will not return to me empty. God's word is powerful. The gospel is powerful. Isaiah 55, 11 says it will accomplish all that God desires and achieve the purpose for which he sent it. 
people are either drawn to the gospel to embrace it and believe it and be changed by it, or they may reject it. But there are very few people that remain neutral about it once they've actually heard it for the first time. And so that transformation is going on today in individuals, in families, and even in societies. Well, I've tried to give you some understanding of the importance of the good news of the gospel. We know that bad news has power to change people, doesn't it? Just think about how major tragedy or national calamity can change us. Pearl Harbor, 1941, did it change America? Of course it did. September 11th, 2001, were we ever the same or can we ever be the same again after that day of terrible news of attack on our country? Bad news has the power to change people. But nothing can change people quite like God's good news in Jesus Christ. It's like seed that will grow where God plants it in all soils, in every climate, in every language. It resists opposition. It resists the choking weeds of error and and people coming along and denying it. It grows and it grows by the power of God. And I ask you to remember that someone once brought the best news in the world to you. They opened the Scripture. They patiently explained it for you. They led you week by week to see the gospel and to see Christ. Somebody lived practical examples of Christian life before you. Somebody probably prayed for you before you first came to Christ. And when you encountered that good news in other lives, you paused because those people were different, weren't they? They were people with peace in their lives. They were people who talked to God as a familiar father. They were people who didn't have money as their grasping God. They seemed to give it away. They were people who served others as a natural act. They were people who, for whom personal crisis or illness or even impending death didn't unhinge them like it does the normal person in this world because they knew the good news. The gospel of Christ that came to you is such splendid news it deserves to be passed on in every way it can by your life. Do you really think it's news you can keep to yourself? or you can only speak about with great reluctance. It's news that deserves a town crier's proclamation shouted with praise from a million tongues. And the challenge goes to us. What are we doing with God's marvelous good news that once came to us? Father, I pray that this would be our heartbeat to not keep the best news we could know all to ourselves. Shape us, challenge us, mold us to be town criers of this great good news. We thank you for Christ who's at the core of it all. Amen.